Welcome to In Search of Wisdom, where each episode explores how to integrate timeless wisdom into everyday life. We engage in meaningful conversations with leading thinkers in philosophy, leadership, theology, and everything in between. We leave no stone unturned in search of wisdom. To learn more, visit perennialleader.com. Hello and welcome. Thank you for listening. On today's episode, my guest is Massimo Pigliucci, the author of many books on Stoicism from How to Be a Stoic, A Handbook for New Stoics, and A Field Guide to a Happy Life, to name a few. Massimo is currently a professor of philosophy at the City College of New York. In this conversation, Massimo and I discuss the connection between science and philosophy, what makes up a philosophy of life, how to choose a philosophy for your life, the importance of Stoic practices, how to think about anger, and much more. I really enjoyed the conversation and hope you do as well. Please welcome the wise and gracious Massimo Pigliucci. Greetings, Massimo. Thank you for coming on the show today. It's a pleasure. Thanks for having me. Well, I've been a, a longtime reader, so it's definitely a pleasure on this end. I really appreciate you taking the time to come on. And one of the questions I often ask people like yourself that have a PhD in philosophy is what led you down this particular path? But for you, Massimo, uh, I'm more curious about this PhD in evolutionary biology, which happened uh, <laughs> before that. I've heard a lot of your interviews over the years. I've heard the story um, towards the PhD in, in philosophy, but what initially led you to biology? <laughs> Uh, the moon landing in 1969, although in a very indirect way. So in 1969, I was, uh, what, five, I think. And uh, family lore has it that I stayed up all night to watch the, the landing. And I declared that night that I was going to be not an astronaut, because I apparently already knew my limits, um, <laughs> but rather a scientist. Now, of course, initially, that would have been an astronomer. And so for several years, in fact, I cultivated, when I was very young, I cultivated uh, sort of you know, an interest in astronomy. I had my own telescopes, that, that, some of which I actually built. And then when I got to high school, however, in, in Italy, growing up in Rome, uh, despite having a really bad teacher, <laughs> as it turns out, in biology, I kind of fell in love with, uh, with, with biology, uh, in particular with evolutionary biology. And so I, I decided to switch and pursue that in college. And uh, then I basically initiated your, your standard academic career. I did my uh, PhD and then a postdoc at uh, Brown University and then uh, got my first faculty position at the University of Tennessee and so on and so forth until the midlife crisis came and then I switched to philosophy. And how long were you teaching biology for before you embarked on the PhD in philosophy? Well, let's see. I was uh, nine after my postdoc. I was nine years at the University of Tennessee in Knoxville, and another five years at Stony Brook University on Long Island. And uh, and that uh, then I switched to philosophy in two thousand and nine. So uh, ever since, I've been teaching at the City University of New York, first at Lehman College in the Bronx, and then now uh, I am the endowed chair of philosophy 
uh, at uh, City College. Well, I really appreciate you sharing some background. How would you say sure. when you think about it today that that background in in science and biology shapes how you how you look at philosophy? Yeah, I feel very lucky about it. Although I have to say, because because other than stoicism, my professional uh, career as a philosopher is devoted to philosophy of science. And so unlike many of my colleagues in philosophy of science, I actually have a background, not only a background in science, but I've actually been a practicing scientist for uh, you know quite, a, quite, quite some time. So I think that this gives me a little bit of an advantage when I, when I do philosophy of science, which consists in thinking about the inner workings of science from the, from the outside. However, I have to say that when I switched fields, I naively thought that my new colleagues in philosophy uh, were going to be, you know, impressed by the fact that I didn't just play a philo- a philosophers as a scientist. I actually took the time to go back to graduate school and get a PhD in philosophy. And then my former colleagues in the sciences would say, hey, this guy is one of us, so, you know, we might want to listen to what he's saying as a philosopher. Turns out, with a few exceptions, I've been always uh, too much of a scientist for the philosophers and too much of a philosopher for the scientists. But, you know, that's okay. <laughs> uh, I was hoping we could spend most of the time today discussing a philosophy of, of life, which you, you write about quite a bit, um, maybe how to go about choosing one. So to start, how do you define a, a philosophy of life? Yeah, that's a good question. Uh, I co-authored, uh, co-edited, sorry, a, a book uh, a couple of years ago, a uh, year and a half ago, called um, How to Live a Good Life uh, with uh, my friends uh, and colleagues, uh, Sky Cleary and, and Daniel Kaufman. And the book is basically a collection of 15 different essays by uh, people who not only study but practice a particular philosophy of life or a religion, because I think of religions, in fact, as philosophies of life. So in the introduction to that book, uh, we put forth the notion that, give or take, a philosophy of life has three components. A metaphysics, an ethics, and a set of practices. So consider, for instance, the religion that I grew up with, uh, you know, Catholicism, or Christianity more, more generally. Uh, there is a metaphysics there, right? So the notion that the world was created by a creator God who is all-loving and all-powerful and all that sort of stuff. Uh, then there is an ethics, which uh, consists in things like the Ten Commandments from the Old Testament, the teachings of Jesus from the New Testament, and so on and so forth. And then there is practices. Uh, you're supposed to read scriptures and reflect on, on scriptures. You're supposed to go to church and share with other people, listen to sermons, uh, and, uh, uh, you know, and then, of course, engage in behaviors that are actually Christians. Now, whether people do that or not, it's a different issue. But, but that's the idea. Similarly, for a philosophy of life that is not religious in nature, such as Stoicism, uh, Stoicism has a metaphysics. The Stoics are... Uh, the ancient Stoics were essentially what we would consider uh, pantheistic. That, that is, they believed that the universe is the same thing as God, or vice versa. So God is in, is in, in the universe. He is, he is the universe. Um, in modern terms, we would say uh, that they essentially thought that nature was uh, made of matter. Uh, they were you know, materialists in, from that pers- perspective. And that the universe is governed by laws of cause and effect. So that's the metaphysics. The ethics, 
consisted in things like the notion of the four virtues, uh, the four cardinal virtues of uh, you know, practical wisdom, justice, temperance, and courage that you're supposed to follow in life uh, as, you know, as you try to live your life. Or, uh, for instance, uh, uh, the notion of the dichotomy of control that maybe we'll talk about a little later, uh, which uh, comes out very forcefully in one of the prominent Stoic authors, Epictetus. And then there is a set of practices Things like different kinds of meditations, uh, a meditation about adversity, a meditation about death, uh, things about like journaling, uh, you know, taking time to to sort of self-analyze how you're doing and how you could possibly improve, things like that. So from that perspective, just just from this brief comparison, you can see that uh, there is a structure to philosophies of life and that that structure isn't really that different from the structure of religions. The main difference usually is, of course, that as a Stoic practitioner, I can criticize, let's say, Epictetus or Seneca or any of the other Stoic authors, and I'm not going to incur into, uh, you know, any kind of wrath uh, by 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 any god. Any god. Uh, while on the other hand, if you want to criticize you know, Jesus, then then you're in troubled waters because he's a god. I love this book that you mentioned. How to live a good life. Have it have it right here. So, 15 different philosophies in there. Uh, would you advise someone to suggest one of these existing kind of philosophies or life against maybe creating one of their own? What are your thoughts there? Yeah, I, I would advise against creating one on your own. Uh, but I want to be clear about why I say this. Uh, so often people ask me, oh, well, why can I not come up with my own ideas about you know, life, the universe, and everything? Or why can I not pick and choose uh, different combinations from different philosophies, basically coming up with uh, what is referred to often as an eclectic philosophy. Hmm. And yes, the answer is, sure you can. But it's not easy. <laughs> uh, it's not easy to do it well. And, and since there are actually out there already a large number of philosophies that are internally coherent, well thought out, useful, etc., etc., why the hell would you want to reinvent the wheel, basically, right? Now, it's, it's, it's like saying somebody's like, you know, uh, sure, I, you could go to the doctor and, and take advantage of the expertise of, you know, uh, uh, groups of people that have studied medicine, or you can come up with your own remedies. And it's possible your own remedies are going to f- work, but it's going to be, you know, treacherous and, and more likely than not, it's going to kill you. So now that said, all philosophies and religions that I can think of do start out as eclectic. Uh, for instance, Christianity, obviously, started out as an offshoot of Judaism, Right, and Judaism and Christianity both were, in fact, influenced by other philosophies or religions. Mitraism, um, uh, sorry, Mitridatism in, uh, in in ancient Persia, Egypt, the Egyptian uh, uh, religion, and so on and so forth. So nothing starts from scratch, really. The same goes for Stoicism. The founder of Stoic, Stoicism, Zeno of Citium, was a merchant, and he studied philosophy in Athens around 300 BCE with a lot of people. For several years, he studied with Cynic philosophers, he studied Plato's Academy, he studied with um, uh, other schools. And then when he started teaching on his, on his own, of course, he came up with this eclectic thing that we today call Stoic, Stoicism. However, we in fact know that the initial version of Stoicism was a little bit too eclectic, a little bit problematic. Um, because what, that's what happens when you put things, when you, when you get things from different traditions 
uh, it's difficult to harmonize them. It's difficult to come up with something that's actually internally coherent, useful, uh, et cetera, attractive, et cetera, et cetera. And in fact, it was one of Zeno's students, Chrysippus of Soli, who was one of the greatest logicians of the ancient world, who basically came in and cleaned up the house. Uh, you know, he eliminated certain notions that didn't work very well. He uh, modified others and, and then and he also came up with, with his own innovations. In fact, he changed the stoicism so much that the commentator Diogenes Laertius in his Lives of the Eminent Philosophers tells us that if it were not for Chrysippus, there would be no Stoa, meaning that there would be no Stoicism as we understand it today. So sure, the modern reader can definitely pick up a book like, like the one that... Um, Sky, Dan, and I put out and say, okay, I'm going to highlight the things that, are, that, that sound better uh, from all 15 chapters and then come up with my own philosophies of life. But, you know, it, it's a time-consuming and likely not well, you know, you know not rewarding exercise uh, because uh, it, takes, it takes a lot of time to figure out what works and what doesn't work and, and especially what, what goes together coherently. I mean, if you, you want to have a coherent, internally coherent philosophy of life, because otherwise, if there are inconsistencies, you will find yourself sooner or later in a situation where you don't know how to act on the basis of your own principles. And that's the whole point of a philosophy of life, that you have principles that uh, provide you with a general framework for acting in life. If, if the principles are inconsistent with each other, uh, you're going to have trouble. When you look at some of these other philosophies, these 15 different that are in this particular book, are there any that maybe communicate some of the concepts or principles a little clearer? Like I think of Epictetus, he's known as communicating the dichotomy of control really well. Are there any other philosophies that, that come to mind that maybe uh, really articulate some of the concepts in Stoicism? Yes, there are several similarities between Stoicism and some of the Eastern philosophies, uh, in particular the three big ones, Buddhism, Confucianism, and Taoism. I would say mostly Buddhism, uh, then a little bit Taoism, and a little less Confucianism. And in fact, in my own quest years ago when I, when I went through my uh, midlife crisis and I was looking for, for a new framework to look at things and, and act on the basis of that framework, I actually did explore Buddhism to some extent. And one of the things that did not work for me is precisely that it didn't click in terms of language. Obviously, part of that has to do with the fact that I grew up in a different you know, uh, tradition. Um, although there are plenty of Western, Westerners who do uh, practice Buddhism. So it's not, it's not that just... just be, and vice versa, actually. You know, How to Be a Stoic, the first book that I wrote about Stoicism is actually published in China, Japan, and Korea. So it doesn't... It, it's, it's not... As simple as, oh, if you grew up in the East, then you're going to be a Buddhist. And if you grew up in the West, you're going to be a Christian or, or a Stoic. That doesn't, doesn't work quite that clearly. But to me personally, Buddhism was not clear enough. It was, it, it was not, uh, you know, the basic principles are understandable, but a lot of the texts tend to be um, difficult for me to relate to. And while on the other hand, as you were saying, Epictetus is pretty straightforward. I mean, you, you read Epictetus, and although even there, uh, if you want to get into the, the depths of Stoicism, you, didn't, you do need the guidance of some kind of modern, modern commentators. But you can pick up any of the Stoic texts, Epictetus' Discourses, Marcus Aurelius' Meditation, 
Seneca's letters and read them on your own without any background in philosophy. And, you know, you get pretty much 80, 90% of what they're saying. So if somebody was fortunate enough to work with you one-on-one and their goal was to choose Stoicism as a, as a philosophy of life, where do you get started? Metaphysics, ethics, or practices? Is there any sort of starting point that comes to mind? Yeah, that's a good question. And in fact, I, I used to do, during the pandemic, I did one-on-one mentoring. Uh, and then I've now sort of stopped because it was, ta- it was too successful, actually, in a sense. It was, it was taking a lot of time uh, to do these kind of things. And uh, hopefully the, the worst part of the pandemic is over. So people are going to have less of a need uh, of that. Although I may be too optimistic about it. Anyway, back to your question. So the Stoics actually thought about this, this question. And they thought that you should study three broad topics which they refer to as physics logic and ethics however in in all three cases those terms actually are much broader than what we today think uh, when we when we think of those of those uh, uh, words so physics for instance uh, doesn't refer to you know the study of sub, subatomic particles or or things like that it comes from the greek uh, physis which means nature so physics for the stoics is the study of nature what we would today call science you have to have a basic background in science, not, not in the sense of being a scientist, but a basic understanding of what we would today call science literacy, so to speak. And why would you want to do that? Well, because if you don't understand how the world work, works, you're likely to make mistakes, sometimes fatal mistakes. For instance, since we're talking about the pandemic, if you live in the middle of a pandemic and you have no idea of what a pandemic is or how viruses work, you might get killed. You, you know, you, you might die as a, as a result of it. So you need to study physics, meaning science. You also need to study logic. Again, the term was much broader than today. Today, we think of logic as a sort of formal discipline that is concerned with, you know, uh, abstract aspects of, of, um, uh, of, lo- of, uh, of thinking. But for the Stoics, logic included anything that improves uh, human reasoning. So it would include not only logic, both formal and informal as we understand it today, but for instance, psychology, uh, cognitive science, the study of uh, not only logical fallacies uh, that, that would be within philosophy today, but also the study of uh, cognitive biases, which today falls under psychology. Now, again, why would you want to do that? Because if you don't reason correctly about things, then you're going to be making mistakes. Uh, again, back to the pandemic, it, you may have a general understanding of how viruses work, but you might not reason correctly about it and, theref- and therefore, let's say, underestimate the risk of not getting vaccinated, uh, in which case, you know, your facts might be straight, but you're not reasoning correctly about, about them. And that also is going to get you into trouble. And then finally, there's the ethics. Now, ethics today, largely in modern moral philosophy, means the study of right and wrong. Right. So, so that's what usually we think about uh, in terms of ethics. But for the Stoics and for the ancient uh, Greek and Romans in general, ethics was literally the study of how to live your life. So it was much broader. Yes, it does. Of course, you, you do need to pay attention to what is right and what is wrong, because that is an important part of living your life. But it also has to do with priorities, uh, with what sort of projects you should, you should be pursuing, what kind of outlook on life you should have, uh, how you should prepare yourself to the inevitable setbacks of life, such as uh, you know uh, loved ones and, and and friends dying or your own mortality for that for that matter. So these three topics, let's use the modern terms: so science, good reasoning, and and uh, uh, ethics, uh, 
could be studied in sequence. And in fact, the difference, the ancient Stoics disagreed among themselves about what the best sequence is. Uh, in my mind, the sequence, the, the best sequence is logic, science, and ethics. Mm. And the reason for that is because if you don't reason correctly, uh, then it doesn't matter how much science you know, and you're certainly not going to have a good, a good life. So correct reasoning is, is foundational, in my mind at least. Then science, because you have to have correct reasoning about what? About how the world works. Uh, and then from those two together, you derive conclusions about how to live your life and how to, you, you know, to best uh, live a, a human life. Now, that's the theory. Of course, in practice... In any any day to day situation, you need all three of them simultaneously. Uh, you know, you, it's not like you can separate them, you know, more or less artificial way. But pedagogically, I think you would go in that in that sequence. Now, within the ethics, of course, there is both the theory and the practice. And there too, the Stoics are very clear. Uh, both Epictetus, for instance, or his his uh, own teacher Musonius Rufus, are very clear that Stoicism is mostly practice. Uh, the theory is comparatively little. I like to say roughly one part theory, nine parts practice or something like that. But of course, the theory has to be there because if you don't have a theory that guides you, then it's not clear what you're practicing, right? You have to have an idea. One of the analogies that they use uh, is, is um, with um, athletics. So imagine today, you know, you go to a, to a gym for the first time. You have no idea of how to exercise, how to use machines or anything like that. What do you do? The first thing you do is you, you get a trainer and you ask, you know, you know, can I try the different machines? How do they work? How do I use them properly? That's the theory. And if you don't do that, if you just start walking into the thing and say, oh, this machine looks interesting, let me try it out, more likely than not, you, you're risking you know, injuring yourself. Not only you're not going to get the maximum benefit from that machine because you're not using it correctly, but you might actually injure your back or your muscles or whatever, whatever it is that you're doing. So you do need the theory. But of course, if you just walked into a gym, did the, the round of the gym with a, with a trainer and then walked out, you had done nothing. You, you have accomplished nothing. Your, your aerobic capacity isn't going to improve that way and your muscle tone isn't going to improve that way. So that's the same idea with, with stoic practice and, and theory, that the relationship between the theory and the practice. I think when it comes to ethics, for me, it, it seems like there's a lot written about ethics. One of the the things I love about your writing is that there's a real emphasis on the metaphysics portion as, as well. It seems more straightforward of how to particularly cultivate ethics compared to cultivating, um, you know, metaphysics or, or making sense of, of how the, how the world works. How do you, how do you see that? And how would you recommend somebody come to, come to grips with some of the, the metaphysics? Yeah, no, that's a good question. I, I would say the following. So let me go back to the three different areas of, of study that the Stoics talk about. So in terms of the ethics, I think pretty much the ancient Stoics got it right. That is, modern Stoic ethics is really not that different from ancient Stoic ethics. There are some updates that you want to do, especially in the language. Um, but, you know, so for instance, some, some of the ancient Stoics sound a little bit sexist when they say, hey, don't behave like a woman, uh, you know, if, if you, in terms of somebody who doesn't, doesn't pursue their virtue. But to their credit, at the same time, 
they were very clear, for instance, that women have the same intellectual abilities and, and, and therefore capacity to practice philosophy as men. So, so there are a few things that you want to update, especially in the language, in the ethics. But pretty much, I think, the ancient Stoics got the ethics right, which is why, of course, we're studying them and practicing today still. They also got the logic right, meaning not that logic hasn't advanced since the Stoics. Of course it has. Although Stoic logic was actually more advanced than Aristotelian logic and it became the dominant approach to logic up until the end of the 19th century. So you know, nobody did better than the Stoics up until the 19th century, late 19th century. Modern logic, of course, is much more sophisticated than ancient uh, uh, Stoic logic. And yet much of modern logic is actually not particularly germane to uh, practical applications. Uh, in terms of every day-to-day life. You know, it's obviously foundational to, let's say, computer science. Uh, it's helpful in mathematics and in science. But for most of us, you know, needing to, to, to think about reason, to think uh, to, to about um, sort of day-to-day matters, stoic logic is pretty much what we need. That there is nothing above, above that, that, that that we need. So we are good on two out of three. The big one, the, the problematic one, is the third one, the one you, you uh, brought up, which is the physics. So there, I think, the Stoics got the large part, portion of the big picture right, but they also got one aspect of the big picture wrong and many of the details wrong, which is not surprising considering that they were talking, they were writing about science or you know what, what used to be called natural philosophy 2,000 years ago, obviously, you know, science has made quite a bit of progress in the meantime. So it would be really surprising. It would be kind of stunning uh, if the Stoics got the science right and you don't need to do anything about it, uh, you know, 2,000 years earlier. So what did they get right? I think they got right the notion that the universe is a um, uh, regulated by a web of cause and effect. That's, that's the modern outlook, scientific out- outlook on, on how the universe works. In other words, there are laws of nature and we are not an exception to the laws of nature, right? Uh, we are part and parcel of that web of cause and effect. And that has important consequences from an uh, ethical perspective, for instance, because it has consequences on the debate on free will, for instance. Uh, they also got right that the universe is made of stuff, of matter. It doesn't matter what that matter actually is. It is whatever modern physicists tell us. That's, that's fine. But what the point that, we're, that the Stoics made, which I think is right, is that if anything has, anything that exists in a physical sense has causal powers. And vice versa, anything that has causal powers has to be made of something. Right? So uh, abstract concepts don't have causal powers, for instance, uh, because they're not made of anything. Right? So they got that, those parts right. The big part that they got wrong, in my mind at least, although there is controversy about this even among modern Stoics, is uh, the pantheism stuff. So they thought that the universe literally was a living organism endowed with what they called the logos, that is, the ability to think rationally. This was important for them because they derived from this notion their own notion of providence. Right? Every, everything that happens in the universe is for the good of the universe itself because the universe is a living organism, right? So from the point of view of ancient Stoicism, we as individuals are like the cells in our, body, in our own body, right? So we have our part to play just as a cell in our own body has a part to play. 
And we should be happy about carrying out that part, not because it's good for us, because, you know, it, we're cells. We're going to die at some point. We, we do our job and then we're going to die. But it is good for the universe. It's good for the, for the body itself. Well, as a modern 21st century scientist, I just can't buy into that. I mean, I'd love to, but I, I can't. Uh, you know, I think that the universe is a set of dynamic processes regulated by what we call the laws of nature, but it's not sentient. It doesn't, it's not endowed with the logos, uh, and it certainly doesn't pursue its own aims. It doesn't pursue anything. So the, the universe is neither moral nor immoral. It's amoral. It doesn't have anything to do with morality. Morality is a human construct, is a human category, uh, which doesn't mean it's, it's uh, arbitrary. I'm not a relativist in terms of morality uh, because just like the Stoics taught us, morality uh, is about living a good human life. And a good human life is constrained, the concept of a good human life is constrained by the fact that we're living organisms of a certain kind. So there are certain things that are good for us and other things that are not good for us. And that's what tells you what a good human life or a bad human life is going to be. So we're not talking about moral relativism, but we're certainly not talking either about this kind of sort of universally, universal cosmic morality. I don't think there is such a thing. So uh, one of the results of this, of my so distancing myself from the ancient Stoics on that particular point, is that I have to revise the concept of providence. Right. So I cannot believe, so Epictetus at one point uh, has this really interesting and very controversial passage where he says, when you kiss your, your wife or your child goodnight, remember that they are mortals and they, they might die. And uh, if you keep remembering, you know, telling yourself this, you will not be disturbed if that happens. Now, a lot of people look at this passage out of context and they say, what kind of a monster psychopath was this Epictetus guy <laughs> that I should not be disturbed if my wife or my child were to die? But if you look at it from the point of view of ancient Stoicism, Everything that happens in, your, in the universe, including your wife dying or your child dying, is actually for the better, for the, for the improvement of the universe itself. We may not understand why that is the case. We have no idea. Just like you know, the cells on my body, in my body have no idea of what they're doing and, and, and what, what happens to them. But it is for the best of the body. And so in a sense, it's actually a very comforting view of the world, right? Because it tells you that, look, you may be distraught by the fact that you're losing a loved one, but in fact, this is actually for the greater purpose of the universe, and that should make you, that should be a you know, good source, of, a real source of consolation. As a modern Stoic, I can't go there. Um, however, I still remain, uh, it still remains the fact that I, my attitude toward death, both my own and that of my loved ones, or anybody's for that matter, is still pretty much informed by Stoic philosophy, meaning that. Death is something that is outside of my control. And I have, it is a natural process. It does happen naturally. That, that I can, you know, testify as a biologist. Uh, and in fact, without death, there would be no birth, right? There would be no next generation if the current generation were not to die. So not only death is, is inevitable, it's actually necessary uh, in order to keep things changing and, you know, keep things moving. So I, I simply have to accept it. I don't have to like it, right? I don't, I'm not embracing it as, uh, as Epictetus would. Uh, I have to endure it. But it's a serene kind of endurance, ideally. 
it's like, okay, well, this is going to happen. And so right now I'm going to focus not on my death or somebody else's death. I'm going to focus on the good things in life. I'm going to focus on what I can do. Uh, I'm going to focus on my loved ones as they are still here. And then when they're gone, I will accept the fact and um, devote my energy to, on the one hand, remembering the good things about them. And on the other hand, uh, try to be helpful to whoever is left. When it comes to... I guess back to the example of working with someone, say you were working with someone for six months and you went through everything and somebody has a philosophy of life, it's stoicism, it can still be really, really challenging to put that into practice on a daily basis. How does something like you're discussing impermanence or maybe even kind of interconnectedness um, that's discussed in stoicism maybe influence the ability for someone to um, carry out, you know, an ethical life and, and one of good character? Yeah, and that's a, that's a good question. Uh, it works for Stoicism just as it is in, in the case of other philosophies or religions, right? I mean, it, often people say, oh, but Stoicism is not demanding philosophy. Well, have you ever tried Christianity? I mean, try to be a, a, a real Christian, a good Christian, or a good Buddhist. Uh, that those are demanding. <laughs> it's it's a lifelong project. This isn't something that you just you learn and then that's it. Okay, I'm I'm done, right? Uh, so it is a lifelong uh, project. And the way, uh, in order to answer your question, the way it works is again similarly to uh, the, my my uh, analogy with the trainer, right? So I'm of course in, in this particular case playing the part of the trainer. What I write or what I teach uh, is the equivalent of the trainer at the gym, uh, you know, explaining to you how things work. And you will understand them because it's not rocket science, right? It's not, it's not really that difficult. Uh, so most people grasp that the dichotomy of control, the four virtues and all this. Rest. It's, not, it's not a big deal. What's the big deal is to put them into practice. And the only way to do that is to do so mindfully day after day after day for the rest of your life. And even the, the Stoic writers themselves admit that this is a tough uh, call because um, Seneca, for instance, who is uh, arguably the, the Stoic writer from which we have, from whom we have the, the most, by far, in fact, the most extant writings. Uh, you know, we have his letters, we have several of his books. He says in one of his letters to his friend Lucilius, like, don't look at me as if I were a sage. I am just as sick as anybody else. Uh, I'm just trying. And the only reason I can give you some advice is because I started trying before you, before you did. So it's like, you know, look at me as a fellow traveler, basically. I struggle in the same exact way. I am imperfect in the same exact way. But I got my training a little earlier. And so I can, I can help you out a little bit. So it's like uh, to use, continue to use our analogy with the gym. Suppose that, you know, the trainer uh, is not there. Uh, you know, is unavailable, then what do you do? Well, you ask to somebody who no seems to know what they're doing. <laughs> and that person might not be perfect, might not be a professional trainer, but he probably knows more than about the machines and the, and the, and the exercises than you do as a novice. And so it's like, okay, that's good enough for now. When you think of practices, there's many different story practices. One that's come up already, Memento Mori. Um, what might be a good starting point in the way of Stoic practices? 
Yeah, there are a lot of stoic practices. In fact, with my friend uh, Greg Lopez, we wrote an entire book called The Handbook for New Stoics where we collect 52 of these uh, exercises. So, so yes, there is a lot of them. <laughs> and that doesn't mean, of course, that uh, anybody should, should even try to do all 52 of them. I mean, we did when we were writing the book. We, we tried them out, each one of them. Uh, ideally, actually, a good stoic practice is probably a, uh, uh, alternating between like three or four standard exercises. Uh, so to get people started, there are some things that I think, some, some approaches that I think are more fundamental, more important. Arguably, the most important one is philosophical journaling. So journaling is similar to writing a diary, but there are major differences with the way in which people normally write a diary, and particularly two. Number one, you try to write things in objective terms, that is, staying away by things I mean what happens to you in your life. So, for instance, tonight I, I will do my journaling for what happened today. Uh, you know, if there, if there are any salient episodes during the day that I think are worth recording in my journal. But I will do it using the most objective, detached language as possible and try especially to stay away from emotional language as much as possible. Uh, why is that? Well, because what you're trying to do is to learn from your own experiences, not to relieve those experiences, right? You don't want to, if you got angry, let's say, which for Stoics is not a good thing, uh, then you don't want to get angry again by, by writing emotionally about that episode. What you want to do instead is like, well, wait a minute, what happened there? Why, why was I so angry about this thing? I, uh, you know, why did I react this way? That's the first trick. The second trick, actually, is to write in the second person, not in the first person. So I just say, why did I, did I become angry? What I would write in my diary is, why did you become angry? As if I were writing to a friend. This is the way in which, by the way, Marcus Aurelius' meditations are written. He's in the second person. Now, modern psychologists tell, tell us that that is a nice trick to try to, again, achieve the same goal, to distance yourself emotionally from what was happening. You are trying to advise yourself, essentially, on how to improve, how to learn from what has happened to you and how to do better the next time around. And it turns out that, empirically speaking, the best way to do that is to use this, these, these, uh, these two tricks, the uh, non-emotional language and writing in the second person. So the philosophical journal, I think, is, is one of the fundamental, most fundamental of the stoic techniques. It needs to be done pretty much every day or at least several times a week. And it doesn't mean, doesn't mean that you have, need to, you know, you're not going to write a poem every, every time. Uh, it might be a few lines. Sometimes it's just a few lines. Uh, it usually it takes me five to ten minutes uh, you know, before going to bed to do that sort of th thing. But now you have a record of uh, which over the months and years becomes a record of self-analysis. And you can go back and compare... Uh, for instance, yourself now to what was bothering you a year ago or five years ago and how you reacted. Have you improved in any, in any way? Are you still dealing with the same problems? Sometimes uh, it's interesting that um, people criticize Marcus Erdos' meditations for being repetitive and preachy, but they, forgot, they, they forget that that book was not, never meant for publication. It was the emperor's personal philosophical journal. So the reason he's preachy is because he's talking to himself and telling himself to do better. And the reason he's redundant is because he always had the same problems. And, you know, uh, time and again, he went back to the same issues and said, oh, damn, you did it again. You got angry again. Uh, what's the matter with you? You know, that sort, of, that sort of stuff. So that's one technique. 
There are a couple of others that I think are important, or at least that work for me. I, I should say, you know, uh, th this is a personal matter. People have different issues and at different stages in their lives, so it may be the different exercises uh, work for them. The, the other two that work for me uh, are these occasional at least exercises in self-deprivation, mild self-deprivation, I should say, like, for instance, fasting. Uh, or abstaining from alcohol for a day or two, uh, or uh, you know, not buying anything other than the basic necessities for a week or something like that. These are meant. Uh, these are not. You know, uh, it's not like that. There's a peculiar pleasure in in denying yourself uh, certain things. The notion is that you want to do two things. First of all, to remind yourself that a lot of so-called externals, including you know the stuff that you buy. Uh, or, or, or clothing or things like that are not actually that essential. They're not that important. Uh, they, sure, they, surely they make your life better, uh, you know, more pleasant, but they're not fundamental to who you are. Of course, eating is fundamental to who you are, but eating gourmet food, for instance, is not. And, and even eating itself, you can certainly skip a meal too and, and be just, just fine. Drinking alcohol is not fundamental to who you are. Uh, shopping online or, or in person is not fundamental to who you are. So on the one hand, these are exercises that remind you that you can do without a lot of things and still be who you are. But also they can be sort of turned around into exercise of gratitude. Seneca says, you know, after I, I fast for a couple of days, you wouldn't believe how good the next meal tastes, even though it may be just stale bread in a soup, right? Uh, and so you, you do these things also to remind yourself that your life is actually overall pretty good, that, that you, have, you, you have the ability, you have a meal every, you know, meals every day, you can afford to purchase a bottle of wine for dinner, uh, you can afford to get clothing, you can afford to uh, do all sorts of things that enhance your, your life. So it's on the one hand a reminder that these things are not essential, they're not who you are, and at the same time, it's, a, it's an exercise in gratitude uh, that, you know, you, you, you become more cognizant of what you have instead of, as it happens so often, sort of taking it for granted. And then the third type of uh, exercises, that exercise that I do regularly, is one of the three fundamental kinds of meditations. Uh, there are three types of meditation. Uh, well, there's probably more, but it, there are three, three fundamental types of meditation stories. One we mentioned, the memento mori, the meditation on death which is meant simply to remind you that you're mortal. You and everybody you love, you're mortal. And you have to accept this as a matter of fact and, and uh, uh, you know, develop an attitude of equanimity and serenity uh, toward this fact. The way I do this exercise is just to uh, walk through a cemetery, walk very slowly and very deliberately through a cemetery, paying attention to names and dates on the, on the tombs. It may sound like it's like, uh, a little depressing, but in fact, it's, it's actually a very good exercise because then you come out and you say, okay, well, I'm not there yet. So, so let me see what else in the rest of the day or the rest of the week can I do to enjoy the fact that I am alive. So that's the memento mori. The premeditatio malorum, which is Latin for premeditation of adversity, uh, is another important one. I do that every time that I face a possible adversity or a possible setback. Um, Let's say, for instance, if I have somebody who I uh, love who is sick and, you know, they might get worse, they might die. Uh, or less dramatically, perhaps, let's say you have, you know, a, a job interview or something like that. Then you, you want to think ahead of time in terms of the worst possible scenario. 
So your loved one is going to die or you're not going to get the job. Now, why would you want to do that? Because you want to prepare yourself mentally for what might happen. As Seneca says, a prepared mind is a mind that can deal with situations. If you're unprepared, if life catches you, uh, you know, off guard, then uh, then you're in trouble. Then then you're going to make the wrong decisions, and you know, uh, or, or you're going to take things in in a way that uh, is not very productive. So you simply want to be prepared for. Okay, well, that a possible outcome. What am I going to do if that is the situation? Uh, you know, how how I'm going to am I going to approach the, that situation? So that's the second one, the premeditatio malorum. The third one is much more pleasant. And it is the sunrise meditation. You find this in Marcus Aurelius. Uh, and uh, actually, he tells us that it's an old, tech, uh, an old practice that uh, predates the Stoics. It goes back to the Pythagoreans of the 6th and 7th century uh, BCE. And essentially means, you know, we do it with my wife uh, often. Uh, we just set up the alarm, you know, an hour before sunrise, make some coffee, get outside uh, in a spot where you can see the sunrise, more or less. I mean, we're, we live in New York, so it's not, not quite that easy. But, you know, more or less you can, you can sort of see that. And then you just stay there and, and uh, relax and enjoy the fact that you're looking at a natural phenomenon that has been going on for billion, literally billions of years, way before there was not just you but humanity. And it will go on way after not just you but humanity itself. Now, why would you want to do that? Well, because it's a reminder that we are interconnected with nature. You know, as I said, I live in New York. We never see stars, almost never see stars. It's hard to be connected with nature when you live in a city, in a metropolis. And increasingly, in the 21st century, uh, more and more human beings live in large cities. You know, the majority of humanity at this point lives in cities. And so we, we kind of, there are lots of good reasons to live in cities. For one thing, lower carbon footprint, uh, for instance. Uh, culture, you know, there, there's all sorts of good, good restaurants, there's all sorts of good reasons to, to live in a large city. But one of the drawbacks is that you might get disconnected from the rest of the universe in this way. And so anything, I mean, the sunrise meditation is uh, it's one way to do it, but any kind of communing, communing with nature, go, out, go in a, on a hike, uh, you know, uh, go, or, or a walk in, in, in the woods, or you know, anything like that, will do it. So long as you do it mindfully, you do it by paying attention to what's happening and to why you're doing this thing. So, so those are the three fundamental types of meditations that I uh, try to do as often as possible. Well, I love it. There's a lot there. So, yeah, I really appreciate you unpacking those. Um, speaking of not being able to see the stars, I recently went to a planetarium in Baltimore, and they could show you what the sky actually looks like without the city lights. Yeah, it is interesting <laughs> how how different it is. You think maybe there's not stars up there, but yeah, they're up there. They're just clouded by all the city lights. <laughs> exactly. I mean, recently for our first holiday uh, since the beginning of the pandemic with my wife, we did a tour of the some of the national parks in the American Southwest, and uh, you know, including Grand Canyon and uh, Arches and others. And it was stunning at night just how different the sky looks, right? I mean, you could actually, I've seen the Milky Way for the first time in many years, uh, not to mention you know, innumerable number of stars. And that is something that modern life is really detaching you from. And, and it's, I think it's important to remember that we are a tiny part of a much, much larger universe. I, I wanted to touch on anger, which you, you talked about earlier. 
not a not a good thing and and a cause of a, a lot of problems. But I wanted to also um, talk a little bit about forgiveness. I, I really wanted to get your thoughts on. You don't hear the word forgiveness a lot, maybe in Stoicism, but I wanted to kind of see your thoughts. And I I have a quick example um, that talks about some of, I guess it provides a a bit of an example of some of the things we've talked about around death of of loved ones. There's a Netflix documentary, The the Story of God by Morgan Freeman, and it has an episode on forgiveness and mercy. And it tells... Of course, with Morgan Freeman, yes. Yeah, yeah. best voice in the business. Um, yep. the, uh, but it tells this story of a father who loses his son. His son is, is robbed and murdered by someone. And it shows footage of this father in the courtroom. Um, and he's, he's telling the young man that murdered his father. He said, I, I don't blame you. I'm not angry with you at all. I feel so sad for you that you have to be in this situation. The father and the young man ended up hugging one another in the courtroom for for many minutes. And and the father whispers to him, I've forgiven you. You have a brand new chapter in life. Make yourself change and become a good person. It connects with me of of that, you know, Socrates quote of of no one does does wrong knowingly. It's simply a lack of wisdom. And it um, the forgiveness and mercy happened to be part of, of this father's philosophy of life. He had a, a theological philosophy of life. Um, but it also connects with me of a Marcus Aurelius quote that I like of the fruit of this life is good character and acts for the common good. How do you see it? It seems like forgiveness, um, you know, to me, full disclosure, it seems like a, an important piece of, of anger, of I guess that act for the common good, um, it, it seemed to do a lot for it, for that young man, not just the father, but the, you know, right. the family and et cetera. What are your thoughts there? Right. So the Stoic, the Stoics have an interesting uh, take on both anger and forgiveness. Uh, Stoicism is a very other and self-forgiving philosophy. For the Stoics, uh, just like for Socrates, as you pointed out, nobody does evil on purpose. Uh, meaning not that they don't know what they're doing. Of course, they, people know what they're doing, uh, but they don't realize, they don't understand that what they're doing is wrong. Right? They might understand that other people think it's wrong, but they think that they have uh, good reasons to do it or good motivations to do it. So Epictetus, for instance, says that every, you know, when people do something bad, they, we should think of them as if they were blind. Mm. So they are affected by a condition they don't see clearly. Now, what, what, what are you going to do if you encounter a blind man who is stumbling in, you know, in, in, on the sidewalk and, and possibly hurting other people? What you're trying to do is to help. First of all, to make sure that he doesn't hurt other people. Second of all, if possible, to make sure he doesn't hurt himself. And even better, if possible, to help him out, to sort of try to, try to cure him of, of, of his blindness. But you're certainly not going to kill him or hate him or, or, or start, you know, ranting against the, against the fact that he's a blind man. Well, that's because we see the physical problem. We see the blindness. And, and so we understand immediately that, well, that's not his fault. Uh, it's, you know, the guy is in a, it's to be pitied, if anything, because he doesn't, you know, he would, he would want to be able to see. And therefore, he just needs to be helped. 
we don't see quite as easily the uh, spiritual blindness, if you will, of people who do bad things, but it's there nevertheless, at least according to the Stoic and Socratic way of looking at things. And so that engenders a, a, an attitude of forgiveness, first of all, and of uh, pity, but pity in the sense of I'm going to try to be helpful to this person, which incidentally doesn't mean that the Stoics are okay you know, with injustice and suffering. If you can stop someone from from an, uh, committing an injustice or perpetrating, you know, suffering, you should, you ought to do it. In fact, Marcus Eurydice repeats to himself several times, you know, if you see something that you can do, you can act on, you should do it. But you should do it while at the same time remembering that the person who is doing the bad thing is actually himself a victim in a sense of circumstances. It's a victim of, of the way the world works uh, and it needs to be understood and pitied uh, not not hated, which brings me to anger. The Stoics are often portrayed as uh, being in the business of suppressing emotions, which they're not. For one thing, because it's impossible to suppress emotions, uh, so that would be a kind of a lost cause in the first in the first uh, instance. But also because that's really not what they're saying. What they what they do is they they divide emotions into two broad categories unhealthy emotions and healthy emotions, again, by analogy with the human body, right? So there are some things, for instance, let's say some foods that are good for the human, for the human organism. They're, they're, they're nutritious, you know, they, uh, they taste good and all that. And then there are other foods that are not good. They're actually unhealthy, right? They're not nutritious. They're a waste of, you know, uh, calories. They cause you high cholesterol and, and diabetes, you know, and that sort of stuff. Similarly, according to the Stoics, there are emotions that are good for you and emotions that are not good for you. Emotions that are good for you include love, uh, joy, and a sense of justice. They, they think of a sense of justice as a kind of emotion, emotional response. Uh, the emotions that are not good for you include anger, hatred, fear, and things like that. And I, by, by experience now, I know that whenever I say that anger is not good for you, people get really angry uh, because, you know, the, 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 there seems to be out there like this, this notion that anger is, in fact, good, at least in some, in, in some degree. That notion is Aristotelian notion. Aristotle did say that small amounts of anger are good. Why? Because they motivate you to act in certain, in certain positive ways. But Seneca responds to Aristotle directly in his book called On Anger. And he says that Aristotle writes that, you know, uh, you want your army, for instance, to be a little, your soldiers to be a little angry because they're going to fight. They're going to be more willing to fight, right? And Seneca says, well, that may be true, uh, but it's also true that getting your soldiers a little drunk will make them more willing to fight. That doesn't mean it's a good idea to have a drunken army, right? Um, and so the general idea that Seneca puts forth is that we should not be needing anger in order to do the right thing. If you need anger in order to act justly, you are using a crutch. And a, a good human being should not need that crutch. You should do the right thing because it's the right thing to do, period. You should try, you should uh, uh, you know, help other people because that's the right thing to do, because that is what humanity is about, uh, you know, what a human being is supposed to be doing. 
Uh, if you do it on the basis of anger, sure, that might help you in the short run. But the problem with that is that now you're acting on the basis of a strong, unhealthy emotion, which may override your ability to reason correctly. And therefore, even if your anger is justified, you might end up doing something bad as a result. Or, or you might end up acting in a way that is disproportionate, for instance, uh, to what the occasion calls or, or acting in ways that are actually not conducive to what your well-intentioned goal actually is. And let me give you an example of this in modern times. Turns out that Nelson Mandela uh, went through a major transformation during his period in prison. At some point, he was understandably, of course, very angry and, and, and uh, very hateful uh, in the, with respect to the people who were oppressing uh, you know, his own people and, and where his, his jailers and so on and so forth. That, that's totally understandable. I mean, who wouldn't be angry uh, and full of hate if you'd spent 27 years in prison and your, and your, uh, your people were oppressed? However, at some point, one of Nelson Mandela's uh, fellow inmates managed to smuggle into the prison a copy of Marcus Aurelius' Meditations. And Mandela read it very carefully several times. And he credits Marcus Aurelius to help him go through this very crucial transformation, to, un to help him understand that hatred and anger are not are destructive. They're not conducive to anything good. That was a pivotal moment in Mandela's life where he decided to look at even at his jailers and his tormentors as other human beings who were doing what they thought was right. Um, and so to look basically at other people like Epictetus says that we should. Yes, they're blind, but they're still people. They're still trying. They're, they have their family. They have their friends. They have their own things. And they're still trying what they think is true. It's good. It's not good, definitely, but they don't understand it. And so the way to, to deal with the situation is to let go of the anger and instead to actively, mindfully develop an attitude of cooperation and reaching out. And that is what informed Mandela's behavior from that point on. And as we know, it was very successful. Not only eventually got out of prison and the apartheid regime collapsed, but even after that, when he became president of South Africa, he kept going in the same direction. He was under significant pressure, for instance, uh, by other members of the African National uh, Congress to, you know, engage in acts of vengeance and, you know, and retribution against the previous oppressors. And he always resisted those. He said, no, those are, those are fellow human beings and we need to treat them accordingly. Uh, we need to overcome this, this uh, cycle of hatred and, and, and fear. And that's, that's pretty much exactly the stoic position. I love the example uh, to me, it sounds a bit like a pathway to finding peace or forgiveness. When I think of uh, of Seneca, of this, you know, the event or a stimulus and the response, that judgment between those two, um, does it, it, you know, making those generous assumptions, making sense of, of of what's happening, sounds like a practical way to maybe find forgiveness for whoever it may be. Do you see it that way at all, or would you not use that particular verbiage? No, I, I see it I see it in a very similar way. And in fact, one of the things that makes me uh, feel better about this whole Stoic approach is that it's found in other uh, traditions as well, like Christianity. I mean, there, there are some, some aspects, some passages in Seneca or Epictetus that sound almost, if you didn't know better, they sound Christian. Right? They're not, because 
uh, Seneca and Epictetus was writing where, when, when Christianity was a tiny little Jewish sect, as uh, Marcus Aurelius actually calls it in the meditations. Uh, so they're not influenced by Christianity. In fact, the other way around, the Stoics uh, famously influenced the early, the early Christians. But it sounds very much like Christianity to me when, when you're talking about forgiveness, uh, uh, even of your enemy, right? Uh, it also sounds Buddhist. In that book that I mentioned earlier, uh, How to Live a Good Life, there is a chapter in Buddhism by my colleague Owen Flanagan, and there is a really interesting episode that Owen talks about at the beginning of the chapter. Uh, he refers back to a time where he himself was at the beginning of his study and practice of Buddhism, and he had the opportunity to interview the Dalai Lama. And um, uh, just before the interview, it had come across this, this Buddhist notion uh, that is very similar, very much like the Stoic one, that is that anger is something that you should purge from, from your system. You should just not engage, not indulge in angry thoughts. And, uh, and so Owen asked the Dalai Lama, he said, well, okay, so... Let's assume that I, I'm going to have this the, the classic, uh, you know, uh, time machine, and I can go back and kill Hitler before he causes the Holocaust. Shouldn't I do that? And shouldn't I do it because I'm angry at what I know Hitler is going to do? And the Dalai Lama's response was very interesting. It was very Buddhist, but it was also, to me, ex exactly also very stoic. Uh, the Dalai Lama said, "Yes, you absolutely should take the, the time machine, and go back and kill Hitler." Not only that, but you should make quite an occasion of it. You should make, you know, you should do it with some fanfare because it's an important thing that you're doing. You're helping, you know, the world that way. However, you should do it without anger because Hitler did not ask to be what he was. He was just a bad node in the karmic web of the universe. And so you should uh, approach the situation just as a surgeon who is about to cut out a tumor would. You don't get angry at the tumor. It makes no sense to get angry at the tumor. You just cut it out. However, you do cut it out. It's not like you don't leave it there because you know that that's going to cause problems. But you don't do it with anger or hatred. You just do it because that is, you, you have the opportunity to save lives, and so you're going to do it. Uh, but that's about your, what your attitude should be. And in that respect, Stoicism and Buddhism are completely aligned with each other. Well, thank you so much, Massimo. This has been great. Time uh, flew by. I've just got one final question that I, I tend to ask most guests that come on is how would you define wisdom briefly to wrap it up? Yeah, that's a good question. The Stoics define wisdom as right reason. Uh, and I find it an interesting definition. This is in Seneca. And I find it an interesting definition. Basically, what they're saying is if you reason correctly about the nature of humanity – then you will act wisely. Uh, and I, I like that way of thinking about it. It's like if you really understand what human life is about and what it means to be a human being, then you're going to be cooperative and helpful to, toward other people. And that is what, what it means to be wise. Well, thank you so much. I, I highly recommend all of your books, a few of them that we discussed, a handbook for new Stoics right here on the, on the desk, a field guide to happiness, and uh, a new Great Courses um, that just came out not too long ago was, was great. Uh, this has been lovely. Where do you point people interested in learning more about you, Massimo? There's one place where there's a collection of pretty much everything that I do, or at least links to everything that I do, and that is figsinwinter.blog. 
despite the name, is not actually a, just a blog. I mean, it is a blog, but it's not just a blog. It's it's, it's kind of a, you know a repository of everything that I do. And the term, the name "figs in winter" actually comes from a quote from Epictetus, where he says that it's foolish to wish for figs in winter. You should you should enjoy the figs when they are in season in the summer. And uh, it's a metaphor for you know don't. Don't indulge in regret about things that you cannot change. Just make sure you do the right things when you can do it, when, when you actually are in a position to do it. And uh, you've also got a, a podcast, Stoic Meditations, that I listen to. It's a, a few minutes a, a day. Um, you've been doing that for quite some time. Any uh, thoughts of, of turning that into maybe a daily, daily reader? Yeah, that's a, it's a, people have asked me that. Uh, of course, that would be more work. And right now, <laughs> I, I'm pretty much pretty much maxed out at work. But yeah, it's been going for a long time. And you know, it started out because I do those daily meditations on my own. And then I then it struck me that it might be interesting for people to actually, you know, uh, share them. And now we are almost at 900 episodes, believe it or not. Uh, with you know more than six and a half million downloads, so apparently I was right. People do find it find it useful. I intend to continue until I will have exhausted all, uh, most of I don't I shouldn't say all, but most of the extant Stoic texts. And by my estimate, that means we're going to get up to episode fifteen hundred or so. <laughs> well, I love it. More to more to come, Massimo. Thank you for your time today. It's really been a pleasure. Thank you for having me. It has been a pleasure indeed. Thank you so much for listening. You can get the show notes and links to resources mentioned at perennialleader.com slash podcast. If you're interested in learning more, subscribe to The Path. It's our free weekly newsletter. These are short reflections on wisdom for everyday life right to your inbox. And lastly, I urge you to put what you heard into practice. Until next time, be wise and be well.